Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My next guest is Dina Griffin, who has a master's of science degree in food science and human nutrition, and is a board certified sports dietitian. She is founder of Nutrition Mechanic, which offers performance and nutrition coaching for endurance athletes. Dina is also a competitive runner, having completed the Leadville 100 and Comrades Ultra races, as well as running sub 330 in both the New York City and Boston marathons. She is also proud to have served as a guide for Diane Berberian at the ITU Paratriathlon World Championships in London 2013. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Dina, Dina Griffin, thank you so much for joining me today. Happy to be here with you, Dirk. Thank you. Yes. Um, we're only about maybe a mile apart right now, but uh, through COVID and all, kind of keeping it uh, with protocol. So uh, <laughs> really uh, appreciate you having or having you on the, on the show today. Uh, can, can you go ahead? I can feel your energy from over here. <laughs> it's a bright, beautiful day, so I can feel, your, feel yours as well. <laughs> can you give us a little background, um, you know, how you got into sports nutrition and uh, how long have you been involved and kind of your passion for, for this area and just kind of tell us a little bit more, uh, more about yourself. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, I started my career in mostly software and IT uh, out of college, turned turned software nerd for a while, but I found not too much reward in working with computers and programming uh, all that much. Oh, so, come on. I love it. This is all I do. <laughs> I know, to say that to you. <laughs> well, maybe I was working on the wrong software. I'm much more than software. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in the wrong software field, maybe. Um, but, you know, and I wasn't an athlete growing up. I just didn't have that kind of support or upbringing. I was more the academic and, and sort of a rebel in my in my youth. So I didn't really even get into sport, period, until my uh, like mid to late 20s, which I won't say how long ago that was now. But, <laughs> you know, it was more a recreational um, drive and impetus just to start you know, ooh, I better start paying attention to fitness. And oh, by the way, I think I like running. And so um, eventually I, I started running marathons just because I felt like that was an easy sport for me to dabble in. Mm-hmm. Um, still being in software this time. Uh, but Dirk, I, you know, as I was trying to get better and more fit and faster at running, even in my recreational sort of amateur years, I was struggling with the fueling component. And at that time, it was like Runner's World Magazine or other sort of publications like that that was the main source of information and my coach at the time. Um, However, the one incident, you know, trying to Boston qualify, da-da-da, and just having a major gut bomb, like, I don't understand this. I follow the recommendations and why did I just blow up um, gut wise got me more interested to figure this stuff out you know selfishly but also then digging into it it really sparked my interest like ah I think I think the stars are aligned here for me to change gears and there were some other things going on um, health wise with a family member that like ah this nutrition thing has something to it so all, long story not too much longer is just that those things combined got me into sports nutrition. Uh, I quit my job, went back to school, got a master of science degree and pursued the credentialing for registered dietitian and sports dietitian credentialing. And so I've been doing this now about 14 years, uh, going on 15 Um, and my passion area is still in more the endurance world and trying to support, I mean, all levels of athletes, but particularly those that 
um, you know, I, I certainly have a keen interest in trying to get more people into sport, period, and how to support that from the nutritional side. But the interest is broad, and yet there are still um, passion areas within endurance sport and fueling that I have. And I assume you work with coaches because sometimes it can be a, a, a team project when you're trying to help an athlete out. For sure. That team approach, uh, dietitian plus coach plus perhaps other practitioners. I mean, certainly you have your physical therapist, massage, and maybe, you know, a sports psychologist. I mean, we can add to the list, but but right. definitely the fueling and the training together, that programming is so fundamental to the progression of an athlete. Yeah, I think it's it's evolving more and more. It used to just be figure it out on your own, but now bringing in the registered sports, you know, dietitian into the team of experts that an athlete's working with can can have great advancement. You know, I think what I want to try and focus on today, it's a huge huge topic of course, sports nutrition. I kind of want to narrow it down and as races are hopefully starting to come back in COVID, um, or when they do open up um, for those folks listening out there, you know, trying to hone in on race day planning, preparation for race day. So if we start, I'm, I'm just saying, let's start a week out and we'll, we'll discuss like tips, guidelines for a week out from your race. Um, and then we can hone in on the day before the race, night before the race, race morning, and then the actual race itself. Yeah. So we'll kind of go through this timeline progression, which which will be, will be kind of fun, I think, because there's different aspects to each one of those. They are very kind of unique in, in many ways. So how does that sound? I love it. And by the way, thank you for thinking of it now. I mean, as we're recording this, it's early April, but... I find athletes don't think about this stuff until kind of the last minute. So just True. kudos to you for bringing this to the surface. But yeah, let's yeah. let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I've having flashbacks. I'm going to have many flashbacks through all of this, good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Um, so I think one other aspect to kind of get out of the way is, you know, what type of athlete are we going to talk about here? And theoretically... You know, we have, we have uh, all types of different athletes, sports and distances, you know, of, of sports listening or athletes that do different um, durations and distances. So how might we think about this and should we think about it in this way? Um, you know, you, you could say, you know, a sprint triathlon, 90 minutes or so, uh, you know, a half Ironman marathon full Ironman, even within full Ironman, you have fast folks going eight hours and you have folks go, trying to go under 17 hours. So how do you suggest we we eat within each one of these um, time periods? How would we break it down um, by different athlete types? Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, you've got a lot of layers right there with the duration Right. And then you mentioned or alluded to like the, um, you know, the athletic ability, uh, right. Mm -hmm. Or that caliber. Yeah. So the level of the athlete, um, and then there's that intensity factor that comes with it. So, I mean, it's almost hard to exclude or separate duration and intensity, but we could talk as a general, maybe breaking it down by uh, duration of event and then Mm -hmm. highlighting some of the nuances between the kind of athlete, knowing that there are all scenarios. Right. Yeah. And some of, sometimes it, it does make a difference in terms of the length or distance of the race, but other times it, it, it doesn't matter, right? That's so, true. Mm -hmm. So let's keep this in mind as we go through. Um, so if we start a week out, is there any adjustment at all in that final week or what kind of tips do you give uh guidelines as we are now a week out from race or is everything status quo maintain what you've been doing yeah i mean i think even among the sports the various type of sports a week out is is not requiring too much adjustment 
nutritionally. I think the focus is more on all the other aspects of readiness, like your rest and your sleep, your your mental prep, um, you know, like taking care of the parasympathetic nervous system and doing all the things mm-hmm. we need to do there. And nutritionally, I would say, geez, it's not the time to do much fancy or different. It's kind of like same old, same old. Uh, in fact, I, that's what I encourage is just stay true to what you've been doing uh, you know, n- not not a time to adopt a new dietary pattern or try anything too radical or radical at all. Right. So it's kind of like going with the flow. Of course, if we're traveling to an event, that can pose a few things, impose a few things that we may need to give some attention to just, uh, you know, availability of your usual foods or how to just do our darn best to mimic our home life, right? Which can be a struggle if we're going across time zones or into an area with different kinds of foods. Wow. That is, I'm glad you brought up travel. I didn't even think about that. Well, and we're that not used so to that huge. so much in the I last know. Yeah, year or so, right? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, our athletes today are traveling, you know, 12 time zones to get to Kona or wherever it might be. I'd love to hear some of your tips around travel um, that you give to athletes. As far as like that week out or just. Well, am I going to rely on the airplane food or McDonald's and, you know, (laughs) you know, hydration airplane, you know, if I am doing, you know, a 16 hour trip, um, you know, that's multiple meals. That's uh, hydration considerations. Is it, you know, higher fat, lower fat, et cetera. Perfect. I mean, I think, when we know that that athlete is going to travel far or just like for a real, you know, your A race of the season, I mean, this is where weeks and months out, we start thinking about all of this stuff instead of just the week of. Um, but I would say for that distance, um, you know, multiple time zones, uh, just being as prepared as possible. And I'm kind of like the over planner like I'm the one that packs or suggests to the athlete like pack as much stuff as you can food wise I mean even if we have to do some extra packets of you know your protein powder and your Mm -hmm. little trail mixes and your bars and stuff or um, being nerdy to look in advance what uh, is offered locally or in the airport just so that we can be as strategic as possible to pick the safest food and the the kinds of foods that we know will work for that athlete. Um, Again, I don't really adjust too much from the typical dietary pattern of that specific athlete. Um, So we kind of have to look at what they've been doing that has best supported their health and training needs from a pattern perspective. Got it. Um, so yeah, it's a lot. It's kind of like private detective work and setting up a strategy in advance, and then there's less thinking about it and less stress around it. What What if we're traveling from a, a colder climate to a, a hot climate? Do you ever suggest some more sodium in the diet leading into the final days? Yes, Dirk. That will come into play as we get closer. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, with travel itself, there's a lot of fluid shifting and just that, um, you know, adjustment from flying to then the new environment and climate so that the body, you know, has to respond to that, let alone the sleep disruption and things. But that sodium hydration piece definitely ranks near the top in that, Uh, I'll call it day before, maybe even the 12 hours before for those going to like the Kona environment, right? Uh At least for you and me, that's pretty humid and toasty. And I would say for most, most of us, that's, um, you know, does require some specific strategies around the hydration and electrolyte loading. Okay. Well now that was a great, uh, segue. We're now the day before the race. What should we be keeping in mind? And let's, again, continue with the theme of a hot climate. Um, and you're coming from a colder climate. From hydration and salt, let's kind of start there and then move into some other areas. 
Yeah. So hopefully, and this is, I'm winking, like wink, wink, hint to, mm. to the listeners. I mean, hopefully we understand our own responses to that environment. So some of us uh, sweat quite a bit more. Um, I mean, the more fit we are, the more fluid loss we will have, usually just as a result of the adaptations from our training. Um, so just getting a sense uh, of anticipated fluid loss in that race environment. So in the hot, humid, we, I mean, could just generally say we're all going to sweat a little bit more. Um, so there's that planning with fluid, uh, you know, the day before is just, a, you know, one thing to mention that's very important is when we talk about hydration, it's not just drinking gallons and gallons of plain water. Right. And it seems like most athletes are, are learning that, but I still see some some mistakes in that area where it's like, oh, I just have to pee. You know, I need to aim to pee every hour, pee clear, keep pounding the water, and then I'm hydrated. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't, it doesn't work that well. It, and it's almost the opposite, right? Because we can lose um, some of those electrolytes right. along with just peeing out all the water we've consumed. So we want to be careful. And again, this comes to that personalized um, level where, I mean, it's a mix of fluids. We want to look at the sodium or salt that we're adding to foods or the saltiness of the foods we're eating, but still drink fluids. It's just that we don't want to do gallons of it. Um, so that day before is really like consistent fluid intake, variety of fluids. I mean, we're getting some water in the foods that we may eat from fruits or, you know, maybe some other um, kinds of vegetables or things. Um, so, so that the next day, you know, we're not um, already in an electrolyte deficit. But for those that we know will uh, have a higher sweat rate, which we could say is, you know, over a liter per hour. Um, I've seen all kinds of crazy high sweat rates, uh, you know, upwards of two to three liters per hour. Um, again, that will depend on the intensity and, and, you know, that race plan and the mm -hmm. conditions that we're facing in Kona or the other hot scenario. Um, but we may do, Dirk, some sodium loading the night before, so about 10 to 12 hours before the race okay. start. Um, and that sodium load is really just helping the body hold on to its fluid stores for a little longer, so we're dehydrating more slowly the next day. And then just to continue, even though I'm cheating a little bit, going into the next day, um, but we may do another round of that sodium load, you know, an hour or two before um, the event starts. And as, is that just adding more salt to the foods you're eating, or is that a specific tablets or combination? Ooh, good question. I mean, I think for specificity sake, I like to use uh, some of the products out there. Or if we are, you know, if we're in the traveling mode, like I'm, I'm using the Kona example, uh, we have to think about the feasibility of like, can you take a salt shaker with you? And can we brew our own like homemade batch of goodness <laughs> to electrolyte <laughs> load or sodium load. So my preference is to, um, you know, use a supplemental product or make our own little concoction just so we can control that sodium intake a bit more tightly. And what about sweat tests? Um, you know, there's definitely different multiple sweat tests out there. Do you recommend them? What are your thoughts around, around sweat tests? So yeah, I like I like when I can measure the sweat sodium concentration for an athlete, in particular the athletes that have struggled in hot, humid environments, or we know they sweat a fair amount, or just have you know had some challenges with optimizing their hydration plan. It's just another level of getting to know that athlete's physiology. 
Um, so there's the sweat sodium testing. And then independent of that uh, is also looking at sweat rates for the athlete, which they can do on their own. We don't need fancy equipment for, right? but it's, it's great. I, you know, there's controversy around accuracy and, and purpose, but I do find for those who have struggled, it's very helpful. And is it one-to-one? So if I know my sweat rate, are you recommending to replace a hundred percent of that rate or what what are your guidelines around just the sweat rate um, replenishment? For fluid loss, yeah, right. how to replace or aim for replacement. Um, yeah, I'd, I don't vote for the 100% um, usually <laughs> for mm-hmm. one that's challenging. Um, but, you know, if we've got the time where we can look at fluid loss and do some testing, you know, long before race week, Um, We can look at what average fluid loss is with various strategies and just try to minimize. I mean, we we each have our own uh, dehydration threshold to where, you know, we we surpass that threshold and our performance will start to drop. And it's not 2% dehydration for everyone across the board. Um, So we can really use the sweat rate testing in training to figure out, you know, what can you tolerate and what's safe and what do we anticipate for race environment? Um, I'll just say generally it might be, you know, 60 to 80% of losses Mm -hmm. that we can aim to uh, replenish during a race setting. Um, but certainly the preloading with the sodium and paying attention to that, uh, you know, duration of time before the event can impact that, uh, hydration status during. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've certainly heard about hyponatremia, um, and folks gaining weight and just taking in pure water throughout you know, a really long race and that causing a lot of issues. Can you address that at all in terms of it's, you know, it's okay to cross the finish line lighter than when you started and should it all be pure water that you're drinking? It's dangerous, especially when it's an environment we're not used to, uh, or we just haven't given attention like you and I are advocating for here in this discussion. Um, During your training, it's really time to look at your hydration strategy aside from plain water. I mean, there are times when, when we actually need to avoid plain water, try to keep that minimal in our hydration plan. It's not too black and white where I can say hundred percent, like don't ever drink water. Right. Um, yeah. Cause we can overdo and co- maybe cause some other GI issues if our formulation and our strategy isn't appropriate. Um, but yeah, that intake of plain water, um, even if, you know, we feel thirsty and we just want plain water, um, if we're sweating quite a bit, again, that's dependent and variable between athletes Uh, And even within an athlete, depending on the setting, um, but that fluid loss from sweat, uh, if we're just taking plain water in then and and our other fueling calories happen to be lower in sodium Mm -hmm. in particular, then we can, Mm -hmm. you know, over time um, reach a point where we are diluting or getting that reduction in, in blood sodium levels, which then can affect muscle contraction. And I mean, a whole host of side effects from that. So it's, it's really not something to, um, practice is plain water, especially for Ironman distance. Uh, even if it's for a professional level athlete. Right. And it sounds like you're advocating for some sort of a drinking strategy, obviously an overall fueling strategy, but in regard to hydration, it isn't just wait until you're thirsty. Yeah. I mean, I know because we, we remember we used to say drink before you're thirsty and then there was the movement to drink when you're feeling thirsty <laughs> two, yeah, right. two ends of the spectrum here. Right. And I don't know that we need to be spot in the middle. It's like a, this moving target. We have to be sensible and learn what we need. 
um, some of us don't have that intuitive sense as much as we thought. And that, so then there is a time and a place for actually having a strategy, but being flexible as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I, I, again, flashbacks, but I, I have this alarm on my, on my Garmin and, and it's every 40 minutes and it's an eat alert, I think is what it says. Um, and I kind of adjust. I'm like, oh, right. I've forgotten to eat or it pops up and says, you know, eat alert. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I, I've been eating well, you know? So it's just this kind of like reminder every 40 minutes mm-hmm. that pops up. Um, and I found that to be really, really valuable. And I, I have it on every single day. As, as So it's like, well, I might only be doing 90 minutes today and, I, and easy. I really don't have to eat. But it is like a constant reminder of like, oh, right. I, I don't have to worry about today, but tomorrow I do. Yes. Yeah, kind of putting it in context, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, anyways, I, I found that very, very um, helpful, especially on, on race day. Yeah. Um, so we're still sticking with the day before. In the 1980s marathon racing, it was all about carbo loading, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, starting three days out or something like that. Uh, thoughts around, uh, you know, manipulation of carbs um, leading into race. I know. And that, and that approach has evolved or, or changed, I think, over since, yeah, the 80s, 90s timeframe. Um, you know, I think there is still an athlete that can fit in the carb loading scheme and do well performance wise. Um, typically the recommendations now aren't so much that three to five days out. It's that 24 to 36 hour prior where we bump up carbohydrates. Um, you know, the recommendations are still kind of, uh, variable in terms of how much percentage wise or gram wise per athlete, um, so again, we have to go back to who is that athlete? What are they trying to accomplish? What have we practiced before the quality sessions and training? Um, are they at risk for GI distress? So I'll say I'll fall into the more conservative approach where I usually for endurance events that are over that um, three, four hour mark, I will advocate for increased um level of carbohydrate in that day before, but we're not talking about stuffing ourselves to the gills, mm-hmm. you know, with, with all the carbs in sight. It's, it's being maybe shifting down some of our fat intake. And I know I'm being general here, shifting mm-hmm. down fat, uh, making room for a little more carbohydrate, whether that's from, you know, some fruits that aren't too, too fibrous or some other kind of grain or other, um, carb rich source that we know won't cause any other issues GI wise. Um, and protein might come down a little bit. So it's like, eh, maybe a 25, 35% increased. Again, it'll depend on what that athlete has tested before. So I'll say in general, uh, kind of like a minor carb load. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, there is, Dirk, some some research to say that carb loading for women doesn't work quite as well, um, as, you know, especially the longer duration out from the race. So that's where, mm. like, race morning is going to count or, rate, right. you know, the dinner before and, right. and then our strategy during the race. Yeah, I've placed in past a few horrific... Um, I, I placed way too much at the night before and just over-consumed. And then that led to, you know, the next morning, just not being able to eat as much the next morning. And that leads into the race. And and so I think it's, it's adding some to the, you know, that night before, but certainly not overdoing it because that just leads to more ramifications. It's true. I think we've all been there or at least, yeah, a lot of us, unfortunately, waking up just totally full, bloated, um, maybe even bowels are affected, like, shoot, you know, I'm constipated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I, yeah, I think it is um, something to really give an eye to. Of course, there are always the outliers that thrive from, you know, like eat all the carbs (laughs) and they're fine. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. So now race morning, we wake up. What? When are we aiming to eat or be done with the pre-race meal? Or does the pre-race meal just kind of continually progress up until the start line? You know, what's the timing of this pre-race meal? Um, And let's let's talk about um, the difference between short, you know, a short 60-minute, 90-minute race versus you know, a long Ironman plus good, type of Yeah, event. good point. Um, well, so with the higher intensity, we could assume or just say for this example here, for, let's say for the sprint try or the half marathon or maybe um, a criterium of some sort, you know, like sh- relatively short and high intensity anaerobic more um, effort, uh, we may want to have that... F- uh, we may want to have one or two snacks or mini meals in the, let's call it, um, 90 minute to two and a half hour prior, just so mm-hmm. we have plenty of time to get that food, you know, emptied from the stomach, get it metabolizing, benefit from that food itself. Um, So it might depend on the time of day that the event starts as well. So if it's, you know, there's a difference there between a 6 a.m., right? right? Uh, And we barely can even keep our eyes open at 3 a.m. to eat versus a 9 a.m. start. So those considerations have to come into play. Um, But some people can do well with a very, you know, let's say a liquid form of nutrition, uh, let's say 30 to 45 minutes in advance of a shorter race. That liquid just empties from the stomach pretty quickly or, you you know, it's not as much of a concern. Uh, Of course, there's that individual tolerance as well. And then race nerves or whatever else come into play. Um, so we kind of have to work with those elements to figure out the timeline um, for the Ironman type distance or anticipated, uh, you know, longer day where intensity overall, let's say for the majority of athletes will be lower. Uh-huh. Um I think there's a little more flexibility in that timeline, but we still don't want to get to the start line, especially if we have a swim that we're starting with for triathlon. Um, You just don't want to feel too heavy or or have the burps or that kind of thing, right? So that time may be pushed out still that 60 to 90 minutes. Um, It might be a little lighter meal, you know, like that common banana peanut butter combo or a, a shake or something that's easy to get down. And then that working back in time, you know, like at two to two and a half hour, maybe even three hours prior is a is another meal that might be more hearty. Um, you know, I'm not one to vote for just pure carbs the morning of a race. I like to see protein in uh, at least that first feeding of the day, just just to keep us full, keep us steady, not get the highs and the lows. Um, so, so I do vote for putting in some protein with uh, carbs of choice. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, as with the race, you know, n- nutrition itself, but the practice of this, what will you eat and at what time, you know, should be worked into training. Um, how do you advocate for, you know, how often should you do that? Practicing. Yeah. Well, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just like we put all this time into our training, checking the boxes, looking at our training peaks metrics, right, Dirk? And it's like, oh, heck, what about the nutrition piece? So I think when we have quality training sessions planned or we have race sims planned or you know we're just trying to hone in those last um four six weeks prior to our big race or just a b race even i mean those are great opportunities to practice all this stuff Um, of course we need the feedback uh and we need to note what's going on so we can make it better for the next time yeah, and, and I know for my big race, you know, I'm staying in a hotel and you don't have all the comforts of home to make exactly what you want. So when I look for my hotel, you know, I'm 
I'm actually looking for a microwave and that's part of my morning ritual for the race day um, is warming up what I've made, you know, the day before or whenever it was. Um, so any thoughts around that? I mean, it's, it's, it's not just, you don't have your kitchen in the hotel room. So that has to be practiced at home and you might have to ignore your, your perfect routine because you will be in a hotel room. It's a good point. I mean, the ideal would be to find that, uh, you know, lodging that does have the fridge and microwave and a little market nearby where you can buy the stuff you need, or you're bringing it with you uh, on the plane or, you know, in the car. Um, so I, I do look at that. And that is pretty important. Like, what can we actually do on race morning with what you're going to have? Um, right. And so some of it's piecemeal, you know, like the instant oats and you add your own little thing and, you know, uh, whatever, peanut butter and you add this or that that you've brought with you or that you've been able to um, source locally. But it's a good point is that's a really nitty gritty detail that's easy to forget. Yeah. And I have to have my coffee. So I travel with the hot pot, you know, and the cone and my nice. beans are already ground. Yeah. So I know I have the perfect cup of coffee. I have that. And, I, you know, I make up a mixture of rice and scrambled eggs and and it has raisins and olive oil and some soy sauce. And I kind of mix this up and it's in a Tupperware. Tupperware and I just warm it up in, in the microwave. That's what, what works for me. It might sound awful to most listeners. No, I'm drooling <laughs> right now, actually. That's pretty tasty. The soy sauce, nice sodium too. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that seems to work really well for me. Um, and yeah, and it's so funny. When I was a teenager, I would, you know, just traveled on the cheap race to race. And I traveled with an electric walk because I could actually do spaghetti in it. I could do oatmeal in the morning. I would do stir fry and I would sit in my bed and just cook all my meals in this electric wok. Oh, wow. And that's <laughs> that is so, so cool. I got it at Target for, you know, like $15 or something, <laughs> but I lived with that wok. But I mean, I think that speaks to, you know, like you stay true to what you know works for your gut, works for your palate. I mean, you invested that time and energy. So I think it's actually inspiring for a lot of athletes to hear that. Um, like, you know, you spent all this time training. So the extra little effort to put into the fueling just helps that performance outcome and the whole experience itself. Yeah. And it's getting that comfort level and, you know, the confidence, you know, um, trying to replicate that race morning is important. Mm -hmm. Um Okay, so now we've started the race. We are in the race. You know, guidelines around carbs per hour um, have fluctuated through the years. And, you know, how are you working with athletes now and what are you recommending and what are the upper lower limits of what, what you're seeing and recommending for, you know, carbs per hour and, and the, you know, the types of carbs? Uh, yeah, it's, it's so all over the place. Um, it's like a beautiful thing and a you know, <laughs> puzzling thing, like what's the perfect yes. amount. So, I mean, it will depend again, back to that duration, you know, that shorter 60, 90 minute, I focus more on the pre loading right. fuel and, and hydration. And there, and then there might be in that 60 to 90 minute or upward of even two hour, depending on intensity, you know, there might be, um, some electrolyte in there. There might be, uh, you know, there might be like the mouth rinsing of drink of choice if, if we don't want to bother with ingesting um, other kinds of calories. You know, the whole mouth rinse can work um, if, if the athlete doesn't mind doing that, you know, rinse and spit approach. But uh, a lot of athletes just want to, you know, go ahead and take in some calories. And I think that helps the mental uh <laughs> wherewithal as well right and that's for the for, yeah if, if we stick on the short races that's a good point i should have uh, clarified that so if we're sticking with the short races you don't need a ton of carbs in the race if it's under 90 minutes i agree i really do i i think that's the focus of our pre-race plan mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. yeah I, i'll say upwards of yeah that 90 minutes maybe two hours we don't need 
much at all. The hydration might be the thing that we're focusing on. Um, yeah, and, and and caffeine might be something to consider caffeine, there. Caffeine, our favorite. Uh, before or during, during, or what are your, what's your guidance there? So, well, we're learning more about caffeine. You know, we've got uh, responders or we've got different kinds mm-hmm. of response to caffeine and the, um, how quickly we metabolize caffeine. We know that there is a genetic variant there that, determines that and plays a role. Um, So some of us don't do well with caffeine. I mean, it can be too much for us. So we have to play with the dosing or just skip it or see what's worked in training, of course. Um, But for those that we feel do respond to caffeine favorably, uh, you know, looking at uh, for those 60 to 90 minute efforts, like, yeah, that 30 minutes out, maybe hour out from the race doing some caffeine and maybe taking a little bit uh as it as the event starts um Mm -hmm. depending on the form of the caffeine it just may take take a little while to kick in you know if it's a capsule or you know um gum or gel or those all those forms can affect the absorption rate yeah i've tried a a gum and i really like that (laughs) yeah works pretty quickly too. Yeah. So, so how about for the longer race now, more general guidelines around carbs per or grams per hour of carb? So I, I know, I feel like now everyone will send me the hate mail, like, well, what about <laughs> this study that showed this? But I mean, I know the recommendations are more in that 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour for anything that's going to be Uh, We can call it over two hours and then working your way up to 90 grams per hour for those longer, you know, three, four hour and greater. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, I mean, a lot of that was based on certain uh, athlete population where all these guidelines came from, right? So, uh, a lot of studies on younger athletes. like that college age uh, male athlete, mostly trained. So we just have to keep in mind the source of these guidelines and realize that all of us may fall somewhere in between or at one end or the other. Um, So for the maybe more high-performing athlete, uh, very well experienced and trained, we can really push those limits more with the you know, greater than 70 grams per hour, um, Mm -hmm. from, from different kinds of carbohydrate sources, right? So you have your, your glucose sources and your fructose, and we combine those in certain ratios and we can really then oxidize and benefit from that high load of carbohydrate. But I mean, Dirk, I find in the, you know, the majority of the recreational amateur still competitive though athletes it's a little much um i mean especially if we've had troubles with gi distress we have to invest time to train our guts to tolerate or experiment with different forms and delivery methods or we you know if we can do some metabolic testing we can see what the what the athlete burns in terms of their fuel uses carbon fat and then play more specifically within that range knowing at goal intensity this is what you burn so let's replace this much or aim for this much um but i mean there are the stories of professional athletes doing uh you know 40 grams per hour 50 grams per hour and and they've trained their body to do do fine and and perform at top performance so you know, I, again, I'm, I feel like I'm bailing out when I say it depends. Um, but just to show that there is that individual, uh, variation and, uh, looking at what works best to, you know, not have GI distress in the picture and yet still achieve top performance. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned forms and delivery methods and that's an infinite number of combinations, right? Yeah. And so f- finding what works for you, but practicing that. And so uh, do you, do you, any 
do you focus in on um, gels versus a solid um, or is it truly down to the individual? What kind of themes are you seeing with your clients? Well, you know, again, this will go back to intensity. You know, there's so many variables here, uh, flavor preferences. What's the, what are the logistics of carrying our own stuff versus relying on what the race provides. Right. Uh, yeah. Again, even the weather, you know, you know from your experience too, in colder climates versus hot, how our just appeal for certain things, like, oh no, this gel number 42 is not going to happen. Um, right. <laughs> so uh, we have to consider that. But I mean, for the, um, I'll say the lower to moderate intensity, like if you think of your, um, I mean, our ultra people or the Ironman athletes that are uh, maybe middle of the pack or, or sort of back of the pack, we, you know, we can tolerate some solid foods on the bike. Um, ultra runners can do a mix of different kinds of solid foods. I mean, it's the whole gamut, everything from, you know, the, uh, you know, like Dr. Lim's portables, the rice um, cakes, Mm-hmm. that have the little nut butter, different, you know, savory things, egg and bacon, rice things added or potatoes. I mean, there are a whole host of nutrition bars and all, I mean, a whole list of options we could talk about. Um, so those solid foods can work fairly well at those low to moderate intensities. I'll say generally provided we practice that. But, you know, some of the newer, um, more novel products, like um, I know you and I were talking about the Morton products. uh, Right. The Hydrogel, I think they call it. Yes. Yep. So there are different kinds of gels these days. And even looking at some of the other, aside from the hydrogel, just some of the other kinds of um, pureed gels uh that are banana and rice based oh, right. or chia based um so we can still get in that easy going down feel uh appeal to the palate um pretty practical from just you know not having to chew too much not not too much energy expended that in that regard um there are other Options liquid wise, like the cluster dextrin, uh, super starch from the UCAN company. I mean, there's just, hmm. it's pretty fun because we get to assess what the athlete likes and maybe test the boundaries of that. Um, of course, if we can do that, knowing what the race scenario will bring, then it's just more specific. But I'll say, you know, I don't work for any sports nutrition company because I like to be an educator and like a provider. Like, ooh, we have this list of things and let's test it out. Right. Right. And then and then make it more personal to that athlete. And and what's the most common issue you you hear about or trying to help people with um, on race day? On race day, uh, I mean, the flow of the calories, I would say the hydration tends to be neglected. So I'm, I'm usually the one bringing that up like, oh, by the way, (laughs) don't forget this piece. Um, but I would say the flow of the calories, like how often do I do this product versus that food or what will work? to make sure I'm staying on track, not digging holes from an energy perspective, and on the other side, maximizing these fuels that I am taking without having that uh, gut bomb or gut rot. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I mean, personally for me, it, it, it was it was half nutrition, but also half pacing. Pacing, huge. You know, yeah. I mean, working with the coach and, and looking at past race information. And I always tended to, you know, for for like a seven hour race, I, I and I'm, I'm talking uh, uh, ski mountaineering races, but it's very much similar to like an Ironman bike, if you will, or run in that if you 
I, I would start out too fast and that first hour and just not be able to take anything in. And that starts to set me back for the next five hours or six hours. And so once I got that pacing under control, then I could start to eat earlier. And then I might lose five minutes in the first you know, hour, but I would gain 15 minutes in the final hour. Totally, <laughs> totally. You know, and I, yeah, and the, the body doesn't know how much more distance you have to go. It just knows what you're doing right now in this instant. Exactly. And great point, Dirk, the pacing uh, plan, the race plan from, you know, what what is it? How do we set ourselves up to, just as you're saying, right? It's smart and strategic and we blend in the nutrition and hydration around that. Um, but that, that is a common mistake is just, you know, burning the matches too soon. And now shoot, uh, we're taking a hit and it's going to be a while before we recover and get back on track. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Any, any final thoughts or words of, uh, recommendation for listeners? Well, I mean, I'm biased of course, but I would say, um, you know, you don't have to suffer uh, in your nutrition around your training and, and competition in terms of, uh, you know, trying to figure it out years and years. Um, you can get some guidance and, and truly just having another set of eyes to come up with some strategies. It, go, it goes far and takes you far in, in your training and your performance. So I think just educating and informing yourself and and knowing that there are a lot of options out there and that we're all individuals so be, you know being careful what you read and see in, uh, out there on the internet but um there's a lot that nutrition and hydration can do not only for your health but supporting our athletic endeavors yes Practice, practice, practice. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Dina. Um, how can people follow you or maybe reach out to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, nutritionmechanic.com is my website and company. I love that mechanic. Oh, thank love you. It. Yeah. And um, I'm, you know, social media, more on Instagram. So Nutrition Mechanics, where you can find me over there. Awesome. Cool. Well, good luck to everybody. And thank you for your advice, Dina. Thank you, Dirk. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. 